Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get started. Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Go, go, go. You mixed up Sigiliano. All you calabrese do the mambo like a crazy with a hey, mambo. Don't want a tarantella. Hey, mambo. No more mozzarella and hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Try an enchilada with the fish bacala. Hey, we're celebrating. This is our 100th episode of Bench Talk, the week in science. Yes, we've been on the air for more than two years now. And on behalf of Ashley Best, J. Scott Miller, Leslie Moise, John Dixon, Trent Garrison, and the whole gang at WFMP 106.5 FM in Louisville, we want to thank you for tuning in. The world truly is a fascinating place, and science really is a good way to explore it. Well, we've got a good show for you this week. We're going to start off with a continuation of a talk given by Dr. Stephen Stack, Commissioner of the Kentucky Department of Public Health. This keynote address was given at the annual meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science on November 6th, 2020. You can hear the first part of his talk on our November 23rd, 2020 show. It's on our SoundCloud page, as well as iTunes and Facebook. The title of his talk was COVID-19 Applied Science in Action. And this week, Dr. Stack includes some excellent general advice to scientists and anyone who can get too focused on their own little areas of expertise. And he also answers some questions from the audience about COVID-19. Following that, our very own Professor J. Scott Miller, astronomer and physicist, tells us about the cool things we can see in the night sky in the month of December. And then we'll finish with a lovely poem written specifically for our show by noted author Dr. Leslie Moise. It's called Mythic Skies. So, hey Mambo! Enjoy our hundredth episode of Bench Talk the Week in Science. That's nice. And now Dr. Steven Stack. So where are we? I've got a few more points here and then uh, my wind down. It's gonna be a hard winter. The holidays are going to be a real risk to people. And if this audience is willing to listen and be persuaded, and if others are willing to influence other people, I urge you, wear a mask, stay away from everybody you're not living with, at least a distance away. This is sort of like the last man standing kind of thing, or last woman standing as the case may be. You want to be one of the last people who gets infected because the longer you push off your infection, the better the treatments are likely to be, the more likely we have adequate resources if we've been able to avoid a major outbreak. You want to delay it as long as you can. 
And let me just say, and I realize I have a bias, I have a conflict of interest here. I'm a state health commissioner and I'm about to talk about my own state. We have every reason to be proud of our public health success in Kentucky. When you look at our population adjusted mortality, uh, so first of all, on almost every important public health measure, Kentucky is in the bottom. We have the most obesity, the most diabetes, the most tobacco use, the most substance use disorder, the most undiagnosed, untreated cancer, okay? I mean, let me just make you feel real good about being a Kentuckian. We are unfortunately in the bottom five to 10 on every major public health metric that really matters, okay? But we are in the top 20 as far as being the best, as far as the lowest population adjusted mortality for COVID-19. So to be in the top fifth for COVID mortality performance, well, we are in the bottom fifth percentile for almost everything else. That's a pretty substantial accomplishment, I think. I'm biased, but I think so. And I think what people unfortunately misunderstand is the economic consequences. I think there will be more and more studies that will prove and will show pretty compellingly. If you don't take these steps to keep people safe, the virus through its own actions drive the same behaviors eventually. It's just a lot more people have to die or get disabled in order to reach the same result. So I don't think that Kentucky's paid a largely disproportionate economic cost for these measures. I think, in fact, we've saved a lot of lives, probably at similar or comparable economic cost to a society that chose not to do this. But that's my biased impression. So now let me wind up here. That's how I see COVID-19 and, and where we are. We're not powerless to change this future. Our actions of choosing to socially distance, wear a mask, and follow the guidance really can have an impact. We've proven that. And I want to share these general thoughts now. I'm going to share an observation I've observed about myself for many years. So I'm an emergency physician by background. Um, I was practicing emergency medicine all the way up till March 1st and had every intention of continuing to do so. And then this annoying pandemic came along and I became a public health commissioner and there was just no time left. And quite honestly, I couldn't go into one of the higher risk areas for risk of getting infected and then go into the governor's office every day and do this job. And there was no emotional, physical or mental energy left after dealing with this job to then go and be the kind of emergency position I needed to be for the people who relied on me there. But up until then, I would describe myself and on different days as I thought about it as an applied scientist. So I don't think anyone will ever accuse me of advancing fundamental basic science research to benefit humanity. That has not been my journey in life. But I have, I think, certainly been an applied scientist. As an emergency physician, now as a public health physician, I use science every day in my life to make decisions, to appraise evidence, to reach conclusions, and then to try to make recommendations for action. I use science a lot. I love science. I remember loving science in biology as a kid in grade school and physics and chemistry. I have loved it for as long as I can remember. And then I look at your list of lectures that you're going to have at your meeting these few days. One that just engages my curiosity for all those different things, although I've had to learn quite a lot about stuff I never knew about when I took this job. But I want to encourage people who do that to both enjoy knowledge for knowledge's sake, but I want to bridge that to these other last points in conclusion. Science without the humanities will never reach its full potential. Those of us who are science-minded have this false understanding, belief is the wrong term, false understanding at some time, or maybe even an overconfidence that people are persuaded by numbers, figures, and facts. 
And that is not the case. And I don't say this to be pejorative. I say this, we are social beings. We are persuaded by people and we're persuaded by people who tell stories with which we can relate and people who inspire confidence and trust in us. So for all of us who are scientists, who want our science to have impact beyond ourselves, we will have more impact if either we ourselves or people with whom we are associated are able to translate the facts and figures and knowledge and learning that we spend so much time creating into stories and narratives and communications that other people can have confidence in, relate to, have trust in and belief in. So you have to have both in order to do that. I also will say is people give presentations and now this audience is probably this is totally wrong because based on a lot of those talks, there's going to have to be a lot of people using some graphs and charts and statistics to, <laughs> to tell their story. And that's appropriate in this setting. But I think if there are some things, maybe my journey in life has given me uh, a lot of experience on communication, I hope is one part of it. I would encourage you whenever you are communicating in most of your settings and you want your science to be received by others in a way that instills excitement and curiosity, which I think is something most everyone wants to do, right? If you really are passionate about something, you would love to share with others that joy that you experience doing that work. Less is more. People will not remember all the facts and figures you tell. They will not remember it. Now, maybe if you're a PhD talking to three other PhDs about a lab protocol, they'll remember, okay? So in that audience, that's different. But if you're a PhD talking to a group of 50 people trying to help them understand etymology and entomology, which is the study of bugs and the study of words. So if you want to talk about either of those things, though, because the average person won't know what entomology or etymology is, if you were to talk about those things, less is more. Use a small number of facts or, or lessons you want to convey and bring them to life with stories. I guarantee you, however many of you are listening to me right now, you will remember very little of what I said. What you'll take from this, if someone were to ask you a week from now, would be, did we like that guy? Did he seem sincere? Did he seem trustworthy? Was he believable? And let me tell you another thing. It won't be predominantly because of the words I said at all. It'll be, was the tone, did the tone in his voice resonate with me? Did his body language connect? Did he seem relaxed? Did he seem sincere? Did he seem fake? Did he sound angry? Those things are going to be what leaves an impression. And a week from now, what you will remember is not the timeline I described about COVID-19 or the miracle of the vaccine development process or the public health journey we've gone on from the spring until now. You won't remember that. You'll remember some piece or some essence of it. You're just going to remember, hey, that guy, Dr. Stack, that we see on TV with that governor guy, talked with us for a while, and did I like him or not? And, and am I willing to follow me? If he says some simple message, am I going to trust him the next time I hear a simple message from him? And so think about that when you as scientists are telling your stories, how people receive your message and how you can make it more likely they will receive it, enjoy it, and want to have more of the message you offer. Um, last two things, perspective is invaluable. I encourage you to have a wide-ranging curiosity. Study the stuff you love and be the content expert in your depth, but have a curiosity about other stuff. Read about history, read about literature, pick up a poetry book every now and then, even if you don't like it, just to see what it is. Have a curiosity about other things, I always like to recommend books. There's a book on my bookshelf behind me here called Range, R-A-N-G-E. 
it talks about why generalists rule in a specialist world or something like that. If you want to read something, because I bet there's a lot of specialists in this audience here today, read the book Range. I think you'll enjoy it. And think about it this way. If I were to give you an analogy, it is like a, a Renaissance woman or man with a wide ranging curiosity. You start to recognize patterns across different domains. And you may say, you know what? So I'm, I have had to, with a team to solve a lot of big problems in COVID-19. And, and it may occur like, oh my gosh, that problem we have to solve for PPE, that's kind of like what, what I saw at the bank when I was there. They had a process. That process looks similar. And oh, maybe someone else has already created the process I needed. I just had to recognize the similarities and then apply it in a different setting, right? So the concept of that book range is that generalists are like these cross-pollinating honeybees. And if any of you heard me in the spring, I don't mean a bad honeybee like a COVID honeybee spreading disease and pollinating COVID. I mean a good honeybee spreading ideas and thoughts and, and pollinating. And so another way you get that perspective in addition to fostering it in yourself is make sure you have diverse teams. And by that, I mean diverse curiosities, diverse expertise, diverse personal demographic backgrounds, gender, race, and ethnicity. Diversity helps to mitigate against blind spots and avoid avoidable errors. And it helps to promote ingenuity and creativity and thinking outside the box. And my last point would be listen to the person who disagrees with you. Because if you sit a bunch of people around a table and everyone agrees, you are almost certainly underperforming and you don't have the team you need to achieve outsized success. You need to listen to the disconfirming opinions because those are the people who are going to help you avoid what have otherwise missed. So I realize this is totally not a basic science talk. It is, I hope, very much unlike what is on the rest of your really otherwise quite curious agenda. But I hope this leaves you with some things to think about and uh, was what you were looking for, Trent. And I'm happy. I'm here to the top of the hour, so I'm happy to answer any questions. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for that. We have lots of comments coming in. What happens if state legislature tries to limit things like the mask mandate? What can we do to support the governor's ability to mandate public health measures? Mandates have been necessary, unfortunately, because absent mandates, people just don't do certain things. But I have said from the very beginning that I don't want to mandate people. I want to inspire people to do the right thing. I, I don't agree with Machiavelli that it's better to be feared than to be loved. I, I think that's a very short-term strategy. It is better to inspire people to a course of action because then they own it, they share it, they believe in it, and they choose it freely. The difficulty is we, we look at the world around us and reach very different conclusions. It's a real perplexing challenge. <laughs> if you're trying to manage people and populations is we can look at the exact same set of facts and reach completely discordant conclusions. I don't have an answer for that. I think it is just part of the human journey. If the legislature comes into session and chooses to take action, that's their prerogative to do so. People have elected them and they'll do their duty as they determine is their duty. And then it'll be my obligation as long as I'm serving as an appointed official and a governor's obligation to find the ways within the rules that the legislature passes to do the best we can to keep people safe. Now, along the way, I sure hope that there's an open dialogue and people are open to being persuaded by what the evidence shows and what's effective and what can be helpful. And, and I've said, I hope pretty consistently, I'm interested in working with everybody. This is not about politics for me. This is about 
how do we get through this? And then we can, when COVID's behind us and, and neutralized, then we can all argue with each other again and not have to worry about COVID, right? Absolutely. Assuming someone has the average amount of COVID-19 in their body and they're, you know, during their spreading phase indoors, how long would you have to be in contact with that person to contract COVID, assuming you're, I don't know, a few feet away from them and, and in outdoors? Current CDC guidance defines a contact is 15 minutes of exposure within six feet with or without a mask. So, so the key operative things are in order to avoid an exposure, you have to stay more than six feet away from everybody, wear a mask if you're even in the same room as other people, and you should avoid more than 15 minutes of exposure. Now, that again, it comes from the need to make very concrete recommendations for something that is probably not quite that rigidly concrete. There's three major ways that this disease is uh, transmitted. Respiratory droplets, aerosols, and then surface contamination. Now remember, surface contamination is really just your respiratory droplets or aerosols getting stuck on a surface with viral particles. So surface contamination is the least important of these, but it's still important. You've all seen this. If you go to a church and the child next to you is rubbing their runny nose and smearing their hand on the rail in front. And then if you touch that and scratch your nose or your eye, you just inoculated yourself, right? Here, how about this gross you out? Coronavirus is not the only pathogen out there. So hepatitis A is spread by ingesting other people's fecal material. So you go to a restaurant or a public place and someone doesn't wash their hands. You've all seen those persons. I know it's no one who's a member of the Kentucky Academy of Science. The person who does not wash their hands after they use the bathroom and touches the handle on the door and then goes out and the next person goes to touch the same handle and open the door and then they scratch their eye, which itches, and now they've just inoculated a mucous membrane with a virus and then they get hepatitis, right? So surface contact. Aerosols, we don't understand fully well, but there is some component of this. We just haven't been able to quantify it enough where the viral particles stay suspended in, in microscopic droplets in the air. That's why being in a closed space for an extended period of time can be an exposure, even if you're not within six feet. And then the third one, and the, by far the most common, is just being too close to someone and coughing or sneezing and having those droplets reach someone else. That was Dr. Stephen Stack, Commissioner of the Kentucky Department of Public Health, in his November 6, 2020 keynote address to the annual meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science. He answered some other good questions in this talk, and so we'll bring you the third part of his speech at a later date. Stay tuned. In the meantime, here is J. Scott Miller and Leslie Moise on the real and the imagined things we can see in the night sky. Hello, Scott here. The skies of winter provide both beauty and a challenge. I get to start earlier in the evening, about six or so, and there are quite a few bright stars to be seen. I am getting out while dusk still remains in the sky in hopes of finding planets. But it's cold outside, so I put on a coat and also think layers. Because it is dusk, I can use my own knowledge of the sunset position at my house. I now swing my glance toward the general direction west. In the southwestern sky are a couple of bright points. Jupiter and Saturn are trying to keep it interesting in the night sky in terms of seeing planets. In terms of planets, Saturn and Jupiter are leaving the evening sky. 
But before making that last appearance, they will put together a relatively rare event, a conjunction. In astronomy, two or more objects are considered to be in conjunction when they are near each other in the sky. In reality, they are likely separated by vast distances, but as we observe from Earth's surface, the illusion of closeness is enough. Jupiter and Saturn have been near one another since first appearing in our evening skies earlier this year. But what has been more subtle is that the angle between them has been getting smaller. As we race through December, this is going to become obvious. The week leading up to Christmas will be the critical week. In particular, on December 21st, Jupiter and Saturn will be as close in the sky as we will see them. Thus, they will be in conjunction. The simulations I have run on my computer here at home make it appear that they will be almost touching. So this will definitely be a close conjunction and quite the sight to see. The run-up to this event will be interesting to watch too. So watching over any clear night between now and then will show that ever-closing gap. Coincidentally, December 21st is also the date of the winter solstice, the astronomical first day of winter. If you watch the sun rise and set, and mark the location along the eastern and western horizons of those rise and set points, respectively, you would find they are not always due east and due west. They will range from somewhat northeast to southeast and back over the year, for example, for sunrise positions, likewise northwest to southwest and back over the year for sunset positions. The maximum points away from due east and due west are the solstices. So December 21st marks the date of the southernmost rise point and the southernmost set point as we observe the sun over the course of a year. The sun crosses the sky at its lowest angle above the southern horizon, casting long shadows, but more importantly not being present above the horizon for long periods. So, with no direct sunlight overhead, and what sunlight does reach us is for short time periods, cold weather is a result. We have winter. But what this also means is that if one watches those rise and set points, they will begin to move northward along the horizon. This will mean an increase in the amount of daylight and the sun moving more and more directly toward a somewhat overhead position. Before too long, this will be noticeable as the warmth of spring and eventually summer return. One annual astronomical event to watch for in December's skies is the Geminid meteor shower. The shower is to winter what the Perseid meteor shower is to summer, a meteor shower that can be depended on to produce shooting stars. This shower can produce close to 100 meteors an hour from a dark site, that is, no city lights, near its peak in the morning hours of December 14th. This year, the moon should not interfere as it will be in new moon phase and out of the night sky. No promises at seeing lots of meteors, but no excuse in not seeing them because of scattered moonlight. A lesser known shower, the Ursid meteor shower, peaks the night of the 21st and early morning hours of the 22nd. The moon will be in first quarter phase that evening, meaning it sets about midnight. So it may not interfere much with the meteor viewing, especially closer to the peak in the early morning skies of the 22nd. Constellations are plentiful, with some having shapes that make them noticeable, if not reminiscent of what they represent. In the western sky is an asterism known as the Summer Triangle. Unlike constellations, which are the official divisions of the night sky, asterisms are simply collections of stars, usually brighter ones, 
that catch our eye because they form a familiar shape. In the case of the Summer Triangle, we see three stars making what is nearly an isosceles triangle. Vega is the brightest and closer to the western horizon. It marks the northwestern base corner of the triangle. Deneb, a bit dimmer but still quite bright, marks the northeastern base corner. The southernmost of the three is Altair, marking the tip of the triangle where the two longer legs join from the base. If I keep looking higher up to nearly overhead, a pattern of four stars all about the same brightness catches my eye. This is the great square of Pegasus, another asterism. It marks the body of that flying horse. From the southwestern star and extending toward the southwest is a check mark of stars that mark the neck and head of Pegasus. From the northwestern star of the square are a pair of lines that mark the front legs. And from the northeastern star of the square is another pair of lines marking the back leg. Or does it? That pair of lines of stars is actually the constellation of Andromeda. She is a princess chained and sacrificed to a sea monster as punishment for her mother's bragging, specifically about her mother's beauty. Now for a real test of how dark one's skies truly are. If you can find the great square of Pegasus and properly identify Andromeda sweeping to the northeast from its northeastern corner star, try the following. Start with that northeastern corner star of the great square, then travel out to one pair, and then a second pair of stars. Each of these stars are about the same brightness. Once you reach that second pair, imagine connecting them with a line as if you are putting in a crossbar on the letter A. The dimmer set of stars making up Andromeda do open up as a narrow V-shaped pattern, easily made into an A with a crossbar. Now let your eye wander along the crossbar from the bright star to the dim star. Continue that line to a point beyond the dim star about that same length of the crossbar. You may see a patch of light, a fuzzy patch, that is located there. If you do, you are looking at the Andromeda Galaxy, the closest big galaxy to our own Milky Way. At almost 2.5 million light years away, it marks the farthest object one can see with the naked eye. And, as time and distance are interchangeable when we measure distance in light years, that means one is seeing that galaxy the way it looked 2.5 million years ago. This brings us to the eastern sky, where a bright and familiar pattern of stars can be seen rising. By 8 p.m., one might just glimpse the three stars that form a straight line marking the belt of Orion the Hunter. Orion is a popular figure because of the 88 constellations that break up the sky, it is one of the few that actually looks like its namesake, made of bright stars that mark the shoulders, waist, and knees of this celestial hunter. Later in the evening or later this winter and on into spring, Orion will be better placed in the sky. So as this year comes to an end, perhaps December's skies can help us forget, if for a short while, some of the shortcomings that made up 2020. A conjunction, a couple of meteor showers, and more than a few asterisms and constellations. Something that can really help take one's mind off one's troubles and simply enjoy the wonders of the night sky. Mythic Skies After months of listening to Scott 
trace constellations across seasons, across the night sky. Their names evoke Greek mythology, as well as a former acquaintance's obsession with astrology. Aquila the Eagle, Cassiopeia the Queen, Draconids the Dragon in the Sky, Cygnus the Swan, Jupiter, God King, Libra, the scales that balance the world's justice. Mars, god of war. Perseus, the hero who beheaded Medusa. Scorpius, the scorpion. Stories about mythic figures. Astronomy's images lend shape to the stars. Those names formed our ancestors' faith. They color our imagination still. We gaze into the night sky and glimpse more than constellations. We stare into the faces of mythical creatures, gods, goddesses, heroes, queens.